Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, May the 1st, 2023. I think it's a good day to have the first of a month, a Monday. New week, new thoughts, new directions. We already did a show with the New York Times uh, technology writer, Katie Hafner, this morning, who's written an amazing novel called The Boys. But she's best known as a writer on technology. Many of you will be familiar with her book, Where Wizards Stay Up Late, The Origins of the Internet, one of the best histories of the early internet. She's also the author of The Well, which was the first social network. And as it happens, history works in odd ways. My guest today was one of the uh, co-founders of The Web. It's a real honor to have Kevin Kelly, one of the world's leading optimists, one of the most cheerful optimists around. Um, Amongst other things, he was the founding executive editor of Wired, uh, very much involved with, with The Well, and I think articulates the spirit of optimism as well and as responsibly as anyone. His website comes with the uh, with the observation, over the long term, the future is decided by optimists. No one could argue with that, although one wonders uh, how you would define the long term. Kevin has a new book out tomorrow called Excellent advice for living, wisdom I wish I'd known earlier. In some ways, it's a departure from his earlier work on tech. In some ways, it's very much in that tradition. And what I thought, given that Katie knows Kevin quite well, was I would give Katie the opportunity to ask Kevin the first question. So here's a recording, Kevin, of what Katie Hafner wanted to ask you in terms of excellent advice for living. Uh, Katie Hafner, it's a real pleasure, joy. Uh, as I said, I've got Kevin on in a couple of hours. I need to prepare for that. But what excellent advice for living, if you were in, in uh, interviewing uh, Kevin Kelly, what would you begin with? Maybe you can help me with an opening question. Oh, yeah, I would. Um, so what, <clears throat> what I would ask Kevin uh, is, you know, where... Uh, and I know you and he talk about this uh, periodically, is uh, give me one, just one reason to be optimistic about technology. Well, Kevin, there you have it. First question. Can't even blame me for such a miserable question. <laughs> give us a reason to be optimistic about technology. And that's from uh, long-term tech writer and reporter mm-hmm. Katie Hafner. I think... A reason to be optimistic about technology. And by the way, thank you for inviting me here, Andrew. I always enjoy our conversations. And um, I'm honored to um, be able to talk about my new book, but is, which is not so much about technology. Um, the question of what would be one reason to be optimistic about technology, my answer would be because it increases our choices and possibilities. Historically, that has been true, and it continues to be true from all the evidence we have, that we have more choices of what we want to do, and therefore, it's more likely that the technology will allow our own unique genius and abilities 
to flower and to be expressed and shared. And um, that to me is a major reason to be technology, uh, to be optimistic about technology. One of the pieces of advice you have in, in, in the book, and it's full of wonderfully, um, wonderfully observant, wise advice is never hesitate to invest in, in yourself, to pay for a class, a course, a new skill. These yield outsized dividends. Is this, in a sense, Kevin, for you, a new skill, excellent advice for living, being, in a sense, and, and I don't mean this in any pejorative sense, a wise elder passing down your wisdom? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it is, I would say, is, it is a new chapter, a new skill, a new venue for me. And um, it's certainly not something that I have done before. And um, doing it was a thrill and something that I had to kind of, you know, learn, learn anew. Um, and I, 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 you know, my own life is a series of projects. So, so um, we'll see where this goes. I, I don't have a, a, one of my bits of advice is to prototype your life, to kind of keep trying things and um, follow up on the ones that work well and, abandon the ones that don't. So we'll see where this goes. This is a prototype in some ways. And actually, I made the book with a prototype. This is the book. And I made little prototypes of the book bound and made into books as a means of, of, of exploring this. And so this could be something that I continue. It might be something that I abandoned. But it's worth doing by my lights because it's, it's trying something new. It's... Um, it's, it's a risk, and and that risk is what indicates that you're moving forward. Where's the risk that people won't read it, that they'll laugh at you, yes. they won't take it your advice, right? That they don't they don't find it. Uh, you know, he have, he, <laughs> there's a uh, what's the word I want? Um, what I, I think there, I, I believe that we have progress and there's even been progress in culture in the sense that um there's so much being generated today it's so easy to make a book in a certain sense it's so easy to write a song it's so easy to make a video so we're flooded with this and so that so we have actually we collectively have actually increased lifted our standards in terms of what we find remarkable or worth talking about and um so it's very easy to make something that's okay, but not great. Um, and I would like to try to make something great. So whether this is great is remains to be seen by the reception. So there's a total risk. The risk is not that it would be like horrible or terrible. The risk is that it'll just be okay. That it'd be mediocre. That it'd be good enough and not great. And I think, um, so I think, you know, we, we kind of keep leveling up and, and it takes increasing amounts of effort to kind of make something that's really great. I guess in a way, Kevin, and, and this touches on AI and your warnings and observations about AI, the biggest risk for you, I think, and, and maybe I shouldn't be speaking in such a, uh, a, a parental way, but the biggest risk is appearing predictable. The biggest risk would be, Kevin Kelly, come, you know, everyone knows who Kevin Kelly is, this supreme techno-optimist, excellent advice for living. 
and it would be a book that everyone expected of you. What's surprising in the book? In, indeed, what surprised you about what you've written in the book, about Kevin Kelly himself and what we take for granted and assume about Kevin Kelly? Because you've become, um, as you know, a, a brand, for better or worse, probably not one that you're particularly happy with in some ways. I think I think you're you're right to frame it in in those terms of of surprise because um, that is something that I strove for in the book. Not not so much that it's a surprise that I'm writing a book of advice, but that I wanted each bit of advice to have a little bit of a that surprise in it, where it was not where you didn't see what the what the end was. There was a twist, or there was something slightly unexpected. Because in truth, a lot of this advice is ancient. It's been around from the, you know, from the age of the the Stoics or you know the Confucius or the Bible. It's 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 there's a lot of this sense of what's has um, been long here, and I wanted to put it in my own words with a little bit of a sense where you were kind of hearing it for the first time, or you you felt that, and so um, to that extent, yes, I was deliberately trying to surprise myself in a certain sense. And I spent most of my time taking words away, trying to really condense it down to something that was telegraphic and yet had a little bit of a, of a sense of, oh, I'm hearing this for the first time. And so um, to that extent that it works, I think it would be really great. To the extent that it's predictable and you read it and say, well, there's nothing new here, then that would be a failure. Um, so um, the book itself, as whether it's me doing something surprising that's not really, I mean, I think that is good for everybody to do. That's, that's the challenge for most artists, by the way. And, and this was a piece of advice to you for an artist is do you exploit what you know how to do well, or do you explore what you don't know how and are going to fail? And, and that's always, that's always the balance that, that you're, we're trying to deal with is even going out to eat a meal is do we order something we know a dish that we've loved or do we try something new and i think there's a there's a scientific ratio of about one third is 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 a good is a good ratio but but artists have that challenge that their audience often wants them to do play yeah it's it's play it's, that song again right you know? play born to run play thunder road <laughs> right and so um you're you're kind of having to work against what even the your greatest hits um, and everyone yeah. wants Kevin Kelly's yeah, uh, they want me to talk excellently about optimistic greatest hits. <laughs> exactly. What piece of advice, Kevin, would you give? Would you like, I mean, you've had a very interesting life as a young mm -hmm. man. You've traveled extensively. Um, you've been, I think, a successful man, although I'm sure you consider parts of your life not to be successful or happy. What piece of advice that you're giving in this book do you wish that you'd known about and listened to when you were a young man? Well, a lot of it uh, I, I wished I had known. And one of the things that, that took me a long time to, um, to realize was I came from kind of a hippie-ish background of very much do-it-yourself. That was uh, my motto. I just love that. I built my own house out of cutting down trees, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I've always been a kind of do-it-yourselfer. And it took me a long time to realize that the best way to arrive 
that, that my best self would be to um, hire out, outsource as much as I could to other people. And, and, um, and, and, and this just took me a long time to kind of get there. So, so that now that's my first inclination is like, is there something that I'm doing that I, that somebody else could do that I could pay someone else to do that I could hire out and, um, and, and, and that getting there just took a long time. And I would have been a lot better off, I believe, if I had kind of understood that earlier um, in my life. Um, and, but now that I know it, it's, it's an essential part of what, what I do. And in a sense, is it acknowledging community by recognizing that some people are simply better at stuff than you are and it's good to involve them in your own project? That's that's a large part of it, and there's and and, there, and I've come to see that 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 there's I'm, I'm kind of serving others in a certain way by giving them this work, and 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 they are often much better at it than me. So the, so the quality of the work increases because they're professional in that sense. But there's also another element, which is that particularly as I get older, and it's something I wish I'd known earlier, which is that um, I'm here really to try and do the things that only I can do that nobody else can do. And so by, by, by offloading things that other people can do, I can get closer to doing the things that nobody else is going to do. And that is really why I'm here. And so by, by offloading and outsourcing, I, I can, you know, operationally take more steps, getting closer to do things that only I'm here to do. It's ironic, isn't it, Kevin, that, as we become more self-confident, as we know ourselves better, we recognize more and more of what we're not good at. Yes. So, so, so growing up is not learning what we're good at. Growing up is learning what we're not good at. Yes, very much so. That's well put. I, I, I may have to steal that one. You can steal it. Well, you're good at stealing. You believe in stealing, right? Yes, exactly. Like I am. We, we steal from each other. Um, uh, but but we what, what I call and this was uh, goes borrowing, back, shall we say, not stealing. Well, yes, and I say better bettering by the borrow. So you, when you borrow or steal something, you are obligated to better it in some ways. So bettered by the borrower is really, and that's sort of like the kind of le almost legal thing of transformation. So you want to you want to borrow something, but then you want to add your own improvement, better it in some ways. So in a way, and, and, and this is one of your pieces of wisdom, make the kind of art that inspires others to make art. But maybe, Kevin, we could improve that. Make the kind of art that inspires others to make better art. Is that fair? That would be, that would probably be closer. However, I am happy with people just making art. Um, um, better, the better is a little confusing. Is it better than the art that other people make or is it better than the art that you've made before? So um, I'm, I'm, I'm happy at this point just to have people make more stuff themselves and express themselves in ways because I really, truly, honestly believe that everybody has a peculiar, unique mix of talents and experience and that um, they can make things that um, we all would um, enjoy and benefit from. What's changed, Kevin, between when you were growing up and today? One of your other pieces of wisdom, which I agree with 100%, is get good at being corrected without being offended. 
-hmm. You and I haven't always agreed over the years, but one of the things that struck me about you is that you, you, you're hard to offend and you're very generous and charitable. Why are people these days, it seems so easy to offend? What's gone wrong? And why do wise men like yourself need to explain to people that uh, getting offended isn't good for anyone? It's not good for themselves or for the world we're creating. Um. So it's a really, it's a really good question. Um, I, I'm not sure I can parse why the world at large is like that, but I, but I do know that um, in my own life, um, you were mentioning as we get older, sometimes we realize what we don't know, and and I think my own, um, my own inclination now to 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 to, to not be offended derives from my increasing awareness of my own ignorance and, 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 and the fact that of my own, you know, inabilities and, and that, um, and, and the times that I've been wrong. And so my, so increasingly I have increasing uncertainty about the world rather than increasing certainty. In a certain sense, I am less sure about, so many things and um that i think helps me to accept correction because it's it's possible that i'm wrong and 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 and, and i've now concluded that i am absolutely going to be wrong about many things i don't know what i'm wrong about otherwise i would work on that but it's very clear that I am fundamentally wrong about something as, as the future will, will, will prove. And so that, mm, that position helps me at least examine um, a correction to, 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 to say, well, you know, it may be true. You've noted that the wisdom in this book is the wisdom of antiquity. Um, Socrates, of course, right. famously said that the only thing he knew was that he didn't know anything, that he was always wrong. Yeah. You mentioned Confucius also. You're, a, you're very experienced in travel. Uh, you spent a lot of time in Asia as a young man before coming back and doing the well and wired. Is, is Confucianism, is that tradition perhaps at the core of, of Kellen, Kevin Kelly's thinking? Is that what you learned from your travels as a young man in Asia? Um. I am, you know, to, to be honest, I have not read very much Confucius. Um, so if I, if I have absorbed Confucianism, it's been by osmosis, by just being around it. Um, I identify myself as a Christian. And yet at the same time, I think I am probably very Zen-y too, in terms of having learned so much from reading about Zen. So in, in a certain sense, my exposure and travel to many, many religious traditions, including the Sufis, um, I think has, has um, rounded me out and maybe in, in my spiritual uh, dimensions um, where I'm sure that there's just all kinds of influences that are so tangled right now that I'm not even aware of being able to unravel them. So um, I, I think it has been possible to spend 50 years traveling in Asia without being influenced by Confucius in some way, particularly when I was very younger um, and impressionable. 
So I so yes, there there must be it, but I don't know where it began or, or ends. The book is called uh, Excellent Advice for Living, Wisdom I Wish I'd Known Earlier. It's a book about agency, about how we can make ourselves and change ourselves and reinvent ourselves. And yet, Kevin, you're also, don't need me to tell you this, the author of The Inevitable, a very provocative title, uh, understanding the 12 technological forces that will shape our future, meaning that they're unavoidable, that they're inevitable. Is there a contradiction between some of your work in tech about the inevitability of all this tech, of AI, of the internet, of networks, and what you're saying in this book about the role of human agency in shaping and reshaping our own lives? I think you know, it might appear superficially that there would be a contradiction, but the kind of inevitableness that I'm talking about in the book is, first of all, it's they're generally trends, not destinations. There are things that are ongoing and um, there are biases, kind of leanings towards. And they're off, th these inevitable trends are at a kind of a higher level. So I would say in a certain sense that when a civilization discovers electricity and speakers that the telephone will be inevitable on whatever planet this is happening. But while the telephone may be inevitable, you know, the iPhone, a particular species is not. And that's generally my, my view in biological evolution that on any planet with a similar kind of gravity and environment of Earth, that, that you would evolve eventually quadrupeds. The quadrupeds would be inevitable. And zebras would not be the species is unlikely to to occur again so so they're the same in the technological evolution that there are um general trends that are kind of in some ways being dictated like quadrupeds by the basic physics of how things go and how things work i use examples of copying the way computational and logic circuits work they just tend to make copies of things so this this idea of things being copied are sort of inevitable about, you know, what's not inevitable, say, in technology is who owns the technology? How is it run? Is it commercial? Is it open source? Is it closed? Is it, um, is it uh, national, international? And so in, in that sense, what I would say, I would call it the character, the character of the and the species of the technology are not inevitable at all. And we have a lot of choice in that. And so while AI and other things at a large scale are inevitable, they're coming, the character of the AI um, is something we can choose. We, you know, who owns it? How is it run? Who, how is it regulated or not? Um, is it how open and transparent and how accountable is it? Those are, those are all choices that we have and they make a huge difference to us. So this agency, I, I think is very much present and, and I think we can get better at it, even though the larger forms of it are inevitable. Yeah. And I guess as a, as a Christian, uh, as a religious man, you've given a lot of thought to this seeming contradiction between some sort of ultimate truth and our agency as humans. Uh, you were on the uh, Tim Ferriss show. Um, 
I've known Tim a, a while, even before he became famous. Um, you, you write about how you we, we should become improbable versions of ourselves, that it's you or Ferris or me. Um, I like that term, improbable versions. I guess, in a sense, it's a warning that we can't become impossible versions, Kevin, of ourselves. <laughs> Isn't that the big danger is... We want to be rock stars or we want to be sportsmen or we want to be great lovers or we want to become multi-billionaires, but that's usually impossible. Actually, th that's true. I think what you're saying is true, but it was actually, I was thinking something slightly different, which is that, um, you know, the, the, what we know about physics and I understand right now is that, you know, the one sort of infallible, unbreakable law of the universe seems to be the second law of thermodynamics of this sort of, you know, slide towards heat death, which is kind of like a uniformity. It's this idea that everything we do, there's always this movement towards entropy, this, this sort of um, failure mode in a certain sense. And so what I would say is, is that um, um, uh, each time and life itself is in some ways um, improbable against this field of, of probable death and probable um, brokenness. And so we have this, this really peculiar cascading and up bootstrapping thread of, of things becoming more and more improbable. And, and, and in that sense, again, looking at the evolutionary pathway, a very highly complex organism like a giraffe is is improbable just just to exist right now today not just even the evolution of it but just the the living metabolism and the old the whole disequilibrial matrix of things that keep it going are, are is a form of improbability and as evolution goes through and involves more and more things each of those things is more improbable than the other and that in our own lives as humans what we're looking for in some ways, as we make things, as we try and interact with each other, is to work against the kind of the predictable, probable failure mode of, of doing something that is um, not increasing options for others, but decreasing them. It is um, doing something that's the easy thing, the, pro the most probable thing, which is easy, and you're doing the more difficult thing. And so I, I, I kind of now view us as in a certain sense, each of us, you, me, the people who are listening, is kind of on a journey to try and arrive somewhere that hasn't been in, arrived before anywhere in the past. And this is actually, even when we're speaking, I mean, ideally right now, the next thing, the next sentence I would say would have never been said before by anybody in the world or in the galaxy. And I hope that's true. Maybe, that's, maybe that sentence has been said, but that, that would be my goal. And so um, if we can do that more often, then we are, I believe, fulfilling our mandate to become the best version of ourselves. And in a funny way, Kevin, we're competing with AI. You, uh, you write, um, a worthy goal in life is to become impactful without becoming predictable. That is, do things that AIs have trouble imitating. You want to be unmod modelable that's a great word by algorithms and therefore in yeah. irreplaceable now the thing about chat gpt is its assumption is it's it knows what 
we're going to say before yeah. we say it ourselves. And in fact, the whole point of the algorithm is to invent words, put quite literally, I guess, put them into our mouths or at least take them right. out of our mouths yeah. and put them into the algorithm. Yep. Are we then, Kevin, in, in a sense these days in, in the 2020s, are we competing with AI in terms of surprising it, of being more and more unpredictable, of not conforming to the rules? In fact, if anything, does the spirit of the 60s where you grew up, is that even more important these days? Yeah, in a certain sense, I think it is. It's, it's um, the thing about um, these l large language models that are now all the rage and we're, we're seeing a tremendous um, boom in them is, is that they are, um, they operate on kind of like the wisdom of the crowd kind of a, a level of knowledge. They've been trained on all available human writings, both the best and the worst. And therefore they're, they're sort of modeling the average in a certain sense. And and they're and that's what they're doing is is there? I mean, we call that the wisdom of the crowd, don't we? Yes, yeah, the wisdom of the crowd. And 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 the thing about it is, is they have sort of the average human bias, the average human amount of racism and sexist and meanness, and and it's it's and that's sort of what they're that that's the default thing is they're going to predict what the average human might say next, given the the the, the question and the prompt that you give them. And a lot of what the prompt engineers and people working with them are trying to do is to move them away from that, saying, "Well, oh, that's 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 boring." I call these, the, you know, the, the interns. This is like an intern answer. This is you need to do better. And so there's there's most of the work is working with these in terms of developing material that you can use is trying to get them out of that average, mediocre, or good enough realm, and um, uh, make them something a little different. And um, I, I know from making AI art and posting one day that um, there is just a whole lot of stuff that these large language models are not capable of producing. And, and this was the epiphany I had recently with, with the AI art, which is that um, it's really easy to make them to do something to give an answer that's pretty good, um, maybe even surprising. But it's really hard to get them to do what, what you ask them to do, what you want them to do. And if you have something in mind, to kind of like to, 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 to get them to go in a certain direction. So I've been trying to get these AI models to make art of a certain, I have a vision of something that I want. I'm trying to get it to move there. And, and, and the epiphany that I had was that, no, they're never, these language models are never going to get there to what I want. And it's because a lot of art is made it's beyond language there, 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 there's you can't describe what it is in language and so here we are i'm trying to get them to make something using language that there isn't a language for there's no way to describe what this painting is about in in language and so they're limited right now with the language interface that we have this conversational interface they're limited to what they can produce to whatever it is it can be described and so they're theoretically capable of making any possible image, but they can't get there because we're trying to use language to get there. And so um, that's, so for the time being, human artists have a huge advantage is that we can make and paint things that can't be reduced to language or whatever, which means that the AIs are not gonna be able to get to them. Yeah, maybe someone invented all this AI, uh, Kevin, to challenge us, to force us to think a little bit more ambitiously. 
we've done some shows on parenting. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, lots of books now. People of a slightly older generation looking back at their parents did a show with Charles Foran, very distinguished Canadian writer, on his father at the weekend, just once, no more. And then I'm doing one in a couple of weeks with Terry McDonnell, another legendary writer, on his mother, Irma. You have a, 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 very, uh, a, a, a very memorable observation on parents. You, you, you say in your book, hire someone to document the story of your parents while they are alive. The resulting oral history or documentary or book will be a gift to them and to your family. Why, why are those memories so important? Why do we need, and this is from you know, the, the cheerful futurist, uh, Kevin Kelly, why do we need to look backwards, Kevin? Oh, my gosh. Um, there's so much to unpack there. Uh, let me um, try to answer the larger, the larger question about looking back in the past and the value of the past. And, and that is, is that um, I, I think humans that are at, at our best um, are when we, when we create civilization that has a generational scale that, that that's aware and reckons with and exploits generational abilities. And that's, you know, they talk about the grandmother influence in, in human evolution. The fact that when you had grandmothers who could um, transmit cultural information to the next, to, to, to that generation, that that was a huge huge boost in our ability to become more human because I, I believe that we've invented our own humanity. And so having that kind of ability of intergenerational transmission was a really instrumental thing in our own uh, evolution and more so as we become more uh, civilized in that sense, more of a civilization-based species, we want to be able to take a generational view. And that generational view enables us to, to see that there are... Um, ways that we can be a good ancestor um, and the ways in which um, and being a good ancestor means kind of paying attention to the past and what previous generations have done for us. And I think that the more I find in my own self, the more I pay attention to the past, the more appreciation I have for the future. In fact, that's one of the ways to become an optimist, I believe, is that you really look at what life was like even 200 or 300 years ago you're going to be you're going to become much more optimistic about today, at the very least. And so, um, I think that view of looking what we call the long now, beyond just kind of the yeah. And you've been involved in the Long Now Foundation right. with its uh, right, its uh, its great clock. So you're very familiar. You're one of the shall we say the ideologists of the long now, right? And 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 that view of expanding it to include thousands of years in the past as well as thousands of years in the future and what would we do what would we want to do so that in the future people would thank us for what we've done today and and i think that 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 kind of perspective can also be applied to us individually that 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 um one of the bits of advice i have in a book about uh, with kids when you have kids is to um how important a an identity a family identity is to them it's very very anchoring as they own, as they develop their own identity, as they get older, having a family identity is really, really nurturing to to the uh, to the development of their own identity. Being able to say our family does this or our family doesn't do this, and part of that 
identity of the family is is reckoning with the generational past, the fact that it's a continuum that you've had parents and grandparents and stuff, and that they are part of who you are genetically as well as culturally. And so I think it's helpful to have some awareness of that in being able to have a family identity, which is really helpful in having an individual, a healthy individual identity. I just saw Godfather 2 and 3 at the weekend. I'm not sure if we can go a little far on family identities. It's a very generous book, but you're not always generous. You say uh, you owe everyone a second chance, but not a third. Um, I'm on my second marriage, Kevin. I wonder whether that means we shouldn't do third marriages. Why, why, don't, why, why shouldn't we give people a, a third chance? Why I'm do we only we give them second chances? Uh, you, you can give them a third. You don't owe them a third, though. And I think... Um, okay. Uh, so, so, so it's like, yeah, you, you, the third is optional. And you might be generous and give someone a third one. But I, um, I, I think there are... What's the word I want? Um, I, I don't... I, I feel that um, we want... Life is short. We want to arrange our lives to um, surround ourselves with people that support us and that we can support them. Um, And so I think we have an obligation to try to learn from those that we disagree with, but we don't have to tolerate um, them. We don't have to become friends with them. We don't have to like everybody. We have to respect them. We don't have to like them. And so... um, it may be that a person has betrayed you once and you give them a second chance, but the third time you, I feel no obligation. You might be generous and do it. So I, I think we, 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 we want to shape our environments and who we spend our time with. Um, and giving people a third chance is something that I think is not necessary, though it might be generous to do so. Where do you have your your best thoughts? One of your aphorisms is if you're out of ideas, go for a walk. A good walk empties the mind and then refills it. When you're stuck, do you walk? Do you go to the gym? Do you go swimming? Do you have a nap? I walk. I I walk every day. I walk a lot. I do walk. How, how, how long do you walk every day? I, at the minimum of, of about an hour on better days. Um, you're in Pacifica, so I, I assume you have a nice view of the ocean. I don't. Um, I can. I mean, it's not far away. It's only a mile away. But um, it, our house is uh, has a nice view of the. Uh, and just to be clear for people not from California, Pacifica is just to the south of San Francisco. Over some of it, at least, overlooking uh, the Pacific Ocean. Right. It's it's the first town south of the city. With obviously um, a lot of beachfronts. It's where the surfers go to surf. I don't surf. But I, it's hilly, and I do walks, and most of the time I just walk in our own neighborhood to make sure I get my several miles done. And I, I find that I can do some of my best thinking while I walk. And um, even when I'm writing, I often pace um, when I'm really are thinking hard as, as I find I'm, I'm a pacer, I'm a walker. Finally, Kevin, um, one piece of advice you've got uh, in this. Every year on your birthday, do something you've never done before. That uh, really resonated with me because I'm somebody of routine. I always do exactly the same things, and it gives me pride to do the same things. Maybe I need to change uh-huh. uh, how I live my life or particularly on my birthday, do something different. Uh-huh. But 
in a broader sense, you're one of the the great thinkers of of, of optimism. Uh, you you know Kevin Kurt, you know uh, Ray Kurzweil and Peter Diamantis and that whole crowd. They've been very much involved in the idea of living forever, or certainly mm. expanding life. I wonder in the book, I mean, it's resting on the wisdom of, of the ancients, of Confucius, of, 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 of Socrates, of, of, of the Christian tradition, excellent advice for living. I wonder whether that should come or does come with the idea of recognizing that life is a narrative, that it, it doesn't go on forever, that it yeah. can't go on forever, that it has an end point. And this idea of every year on your birthday, do something you've never done before. Is it possible to come to a birthday where uh, we recognize that we've done everything and it's time to die? Uh, your book is entitled um, Excellent Advice for Living. What about excellent advice for dying? Yeah, I'm I'm very skeptical of the um, the, the ability to well it, to be immortal for sure, and I'm even not very uh, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical that any kind of longevity will be very very long in coming, um, and so um, and certainly not within my lifetime, certainly not within anybody's living lifetime. I think it's going to be a very very slow process of extending life. Um, but I, I, immortality doesn't seem to me to be even possible in the way that, that we would want it to be. And so I, I'm resigned to the, um, the, the inevitable death of, um, people. In fact, I have rehearsed it. I had the privilege of, living for six months, you know, preparing to die in six months when I was younger. And that was an incredible experience and a rebirth. And um, I, what, what, what happened you? I, well, I told the story for the very first time on this American life. It happened in Jerusalem. And it was part of my religious conversion where I had the assignment to prepare to, to die in six months, even though I was very healthy. And I, took that assignment very, very, very seriously and, um, you know, really literally did that, um, prepared to, to die, give, you know, giving away things, just, just going through the entire thing with my whole intention. And obviously I didn't die, but what I had was the experience of a, of a rebirth on, on that morning when the next morning when I didn't die. And so I, I, in a certain sense, um, I can't say that I'm ready, but I have rehearsed the the idea of of um, accepting that and trying to live today with the idea that this might be my last day. I'm, you know, it's it's I have enough friends who are older and and to see that 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 we cannot take things for granted. So I try to live much as possible with the idea that today in this interview might be my last time that we have a conversation. And I'm trying to take advantage of that.